going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10. Continuing our series, Jesus for Everyone. So far in this book, this is how we do this, just verse by verse going through the book, which leads us to texts like the one today that, just to be honest with you, a lot of the commentaries just completely skip over because it's pretty controversial and uh, pretty juicy. So maybe that'll get your attention and get you excited. But uh, going through this book, we have had that, that series title, Jesus for Everyone, has been uh, underscored in almost every text that we've looked at. We've seen how Jesus' ministry went out uh, to the outcasts, to the forgotten, uh, to the, the marginalized, from the healing of the sick and the unclean, to the incorporation uh, of women as his disciples. It seems as though no one gets left out in this, hence the title, Jesus is for everyone. But today, today's text, what we're going to look at, uh, perhaps more than any other in this book, is going to challenge that premise, that Jesus is for everyone. Uh, In fact, Jesus is going to specifically rejoice in the fact that Jesus is not for everyone. Does that that get your attention a little bit? A little bit crazy. But that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to work through this just a little bit. And hopefully by the end of this, can shed some light on what is happening in this text. But I'll just go ahead and tell you up front, in no way am I going to answer all the questions. Some questions I'm not going to answer, and there are answers to. And some questions I'm not going to answer, and there are no answers to. We're simply not given them. So... Maybe adjust your expectations accordingly, but that's what we're going we're gonna to dig into this morning here in Luke chapter 10. Our family has done our fair share of theme parks in our day. We love our trips to Disney and uh, Dollywood. Uh, my kids are both, uh, both teenagers now, uh, but I remember the day when going to a theme park was really kind of a way to gauge just how much your kids have grown the previous year. I don't know if some of you guys are like at that spot right now where uh, you, 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 you show up at a theme park and you have to go through this process, especially I know at, at Dollywood, I remember this. My, my kids were always pretty cautious whenever it comes to uh, roller coasters, a little bit slow to kind of stick their toe in the water when it comes to uh, roller coasters. Um, but uh, as they've gotten older, they've gotten a little bit more uh, adventurous. But uh, they were always a bit tentative, but there's many a kid that has found their nemesis in six words. Must be this tall to ride. Some of y'all are counting that right now, trying to figure out if that's really six words. It is. Must be this tall to ride. The dreaded height stick at the entrance of every roller coaster that says, you've got to reach this point before you can get on this ride. Uh, got a picture here, if you, if you bring that picture up. This is nine years ago uh, that, which, I, parents, you got kids that are young, like, this stuff hurts to see this stuff when they get older, just so you know. Um, but I remember this picture nine years ago, and I remember it was a big deal because both of them graduated to the next color wristband. They got to the next wristband, and what that meant for us was we could get beyond the ducks and the pigs and the bees, and that is big news at Dollywood. Because those three, those three things, I don't care how cute your kids are, get boring after a while. Uh, and they've got more stuff at Dollywood for younger kids, but at the time, that's all they had. So we, this was a big day for us. We got to graduate to the next, uh, the next thing. 
Uh, and, and so I, I remember taking this picture because they got the wristband and they went to the, the, the next thing. So, um, I, I remember being at, at Disney and, and my, my nephew, who was always a bit more uh, daring when it comes to roller coasters, uh, and I remember my nephew and my sister, when he's like three, like super young, they're trying to figure out the thickest shoes that they can find so that he can make the height requirement so that he can ride uh, a couple of the roller coasters there uh, at Disney, to which I'm like, spirit and letter of the law here, like, I don't, those shoes are not going to keep him in that roller coaster. There's a reason there's a height requirement for him to be able to, to be on this. It's just the necessity of reaching a certain number uh, limited to, to limits who can be in that line, who can be on that roller coaster. And so every time whenever you got to take that next step to the next set of roller coasters and things got bigger, it was a big day. It was a cause for celebration and rejoicing. This morning, we're going to see what requirements, quote-unquote, are in place for us when it comes to not only following Jesus, but for, for entrance into the kingdom, for having our name written in the book of life, what we looked at last week. What are the requirements for us? And we're going to look at what made Jesus rejoice, what made him celebrate. Do you know there's only one time in all of scripture that we are told something made Jesus rejoice? Now we're told about Jesus having joy in certain things in some other areas. In John 17, uh, we're, we're told about how, how we can have some of Jesus's joy, namely if we do as he commanded, uh, that, that if we do that, that his joy will be in us and our joy will be full because we will have Jesus' uh, joy. But, but only here in, in Luke chapter 10 do we see Jesus laying out for us something that makes him rejoice. We know Jesus is a man of sorrows, but we don't necessarily think of him uh, 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 as a man who rejoices. So what makes Jesus rejoice? Now, we, we, we read last week how he warned the disciples not to find their joy in some authority or some power that they have been given over the demons, but to, the, to find their joy in the reality that their name is written down in the book of life. But what about Jesus? What gave him joy? And we're going to look at a text that is both remarkably complicated and surprisingly simple all at the same time. And we're going to end this, we're going to end this by uh, watching a video that's longer than what I would typically show in a service, but one that I think so, so encapsulates what's going on here in these, in these verses. So I've got to hurry because we're going to have to get to that video uh, here at the end. So Luke chapter 10, 21 and 22. Let's read that to start with. In that same hour, so just in, uh, immediately following the teaching that he had, uh, in, the, in the same time, still in conversation with the disciples. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such, at, such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son uh, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So let's just stop right there. That's, that's the, 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 the juice, the meat of the text this morning. 
So, so he's, he's been teaching the disciples. He tells them where to find their joy. In that same context, he's kind of wrapped up that part with the, the disciples. In that same context, he begins to rejoice. Uh, he, he tells them to find, not find their joy in power over the demons, but in the fact that their name's written in the book of life. They have eternity before them. And then Jesus finishes this conversation and this teaching and he begins to reflect on what they've told them. Remember, this is the, the 72 coming back from mission. And as Jesus begins to reflect on what he's heard, what he's hearing, the, the report from uh, mission, this profound joy kind of begins to well up within him. The translation just says, he rejoiced, which that's fine. But the, the picture here is kind of a, a welling up of joy that leaves him literally overjoyed, overflowing with joy, bubbling over in joy. This is not a, oh, this is nice, this makes me happy. This is like an emotional outpouring coming from the depths of who Jesus is. He is rejoicing, he is overflowing with joy. And so essentially you have this son uh, now overflowing with joy because the father has done something out of his joy. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna need you to walk with me through some of this here, all right? He, he's overflowing with joy because the father has done something out of his joy, the father's joy, right? So the son has joy because the father has done something out of the father's joy. And Jesus is feeling this pleasure as he is filled by the Holy Spirit. And he begins to, to kind of see and feel this truth. It's such a cool text because there's so much going on here. If you wanted to just spend a couple of hours talking about different aspects of the Trinity rooted in this text, we could spend a while talking about that here. But instead, and, and we'll look at a little bit of that, but we, we won't mind all of those depths or even really close to it. So what is it that causes Jesus to rejoice and for the Father to have so much joy? That's the question that you need to ask. That God the Father has hidden things to some and revealed things to others. That's what makes Jesus rejoice. That God the Father has hidden things to some and revealed things to others. Now, does that sound like Jesus for everyone to you? It doesn't to me. If Jesus is for everyone, then how is something hidden to them? How, how is it that, that something is hidden, and how is it that the Father is joyful in this, and that the Son rejoices in the Father's will, that it's hidden to some, and that it is not to others? We'll get to that in just a second. I love all the notes about the Father, the Son, and the, and the Spirit. I love all that is in here. And if you look at the end of verse 21, it says, it says Father, for such was your gracious will. But another way to translate this, and your, your translation may have something more like this, is, for so it pleased you well. And you say, well, those two sound very different, but it's really kind of an idiom that puts all of that together, and it's talking about both of those things. So the idea here is that the Father is pleased that this has happened this way. So, so it brings him joy, and it's his will. His will brings him joy. So it's his will, and he's pleased with it, all right? So all of that is important. But, but why does this act of the Father's will please the Father and please the Son? All right? We're, I told you we're, we're diving in the deep end here, but keep coming with me, and we'll get to this, all right? Just keep, keep coming with me. Why does this act, 
that he, he hides it from some and reveals it to others. Why does this please the Father and please the Son? Why is this such a moment of celebration for Jesus? After all, if God is, has not revealed it to all, by definition, it can't be for everyone, right? All right, so let's walk through this. You know, I get the question a lot from folks asking about our church uh, or asking about me specifically. I talked about Providence 101. This usually comes up in most of our Providence 101 classes. If you're a member, you've been through those. Maybe you remember uh, my answer to this question. And the question is, are you a Calvinist? Are you a Calvinist? That's the C word that nobody likes to talk about. Are you a, a Calvinist? And immediately when I hear that question, my defenses go up just a little bit because it's not a neutral question. Anybody that asks that question has already decided whether they are or they aren't and whether or not the other person, depending on how they answer, is friend or foe. It's the nature of this theological debate. I don't really understand why it goes in this direction, but it's kind of the nature of, uh, of this debate. Are you a Calvinist? And so like this is, it, it's, it's a way for people to kind of label you and say, okay, now I know what you do. Well, so first, let me tell you how I answer that question in case you've forgotten. Uh, the, the first way I answer that question is, well, as a church, we, aren't really, we, we don't really have a stance on that issue. It's not in our statement of faith. Uh, we don't take a, a, a position on that particular theological uh, doctrine. You can be a member and be on one side of the fence, or you can be a member and be on the other side of the fence, or you can be a member and be directly on the fence, or you can be a member and have no idea where the fence is at all on this one, right? You can be all over the place. We, we, don't, we don't ask whenever it comes to this issue, when it comes to uh, membership. And now, even as I say that, some of you are sitting out there and you're like, okay, I know exactly what he's talking about theologically. Others of you are sitting out there thinking about who's, Cal, who's Calvin? What are we talking about when you say Calvinist? And you have no idea what I'm even, what, like, you, you have no idea that there's a fence anywhere in this conversation at all. And you think I'm talking about farming now. So you're totally lost on all of this. That's okay. That's totally okay. Whenever people talk about Calvinists, and this is the, the next reply that I have to this, when you're talking about me, am I a Calvinist? My next question is, well, you're going to have to define some terms for me. Because everybody who uses that word uses that word in a different way. They could be talking, you're going to have to, def- because what I've learned is that everyone uses different things. Some are talking about the doctrine of predestination whenever they use that word. Some are talking about a whole system of theological thought, of which predestination is a small part of that. Others are talking about evangelism. Others are talking about philosophy. There's all kinds of things that you can mean whenever you use that word. So I have to know what they mean by Calvinism before I can answer that question and say, where am I at? Generally speaking, my goal, whenever I stand up here and teach the text, is to just say whatever the Bible says. That is my goal. Wherever that leads me, wherever that, 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 that falls, then I'm going to be okay with that. I don't want to say more, and I don't want to say less. So let's walk through this and see what the, the Bible is saying here. And we can talk about this idea of Calvinism or predestination or whatever you want to call it. Jesus is rejoicing that the Father finds pleasure 
uh, in, his, in his will. And what is his will? That these things, quote unquote, have been hidden from the wise and revealed to little children, to babes, to infants. What are these things? Well, verse 22 answers that. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son who... No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So that gets a little wordy, gets a little bit complicated, but, but basically what these things are that have either been hidden or revealed is, is this idea, the knowledge and the recognition that the way to know God the Father is through Jesus the Son. Because, you, because when you know Jesus, you know God. That's it. That, that's these things. That's the topic right here. Seeing, knowing, and acknowledging who Jesus is. So far, that's what Luke has been all about, is it not? This is what we've seen all the way through in the first nine chapters, answering the question, who is this Jesus? And now Jesus is rejoicing as the 72 come back from mission, and Jesus realizes that they are starting to get it as they begin to teach and to to share the gospel with others. They are starting to understand. Peter has made his confession that Jesus is the Christ. The disciples are casting out demons and wielding authority that has been given to them by Jesus. Things are starting to come together. So Jesus rejoices that they are starting to to get it. But, But we know from their testimony that not everyone was getting it. Just as Jesus had warned just a couple of chapters ago in the parable of the, the sowers or the parable of the, the soils. Some would get it, some would not. And apparently, some are getting it because it has been revealed to them. So what do we make of all of this? And again, I'll ask, why is Jesus rejoicing over this? What about Jesus for everyone? Here's, here's what I can say for certain when it comes to all this. If God had wanted to, he could have just simply said, he, he, could, he could have just simply saved everyone. God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. This is what Romans makes very clear to us in Romans 9, 10, and 11. God can do whatever he chooses. He is the grand authority. No one else sits above him. He can do anything. And he could have said, you know what, you guys, you're fine. I'm just going to look over here while you guys make your way into heaven. All is good. Your name is written in the book of life. Everybody's fine. You all get in. Now, when you hear that, initially, every one of you would say, that sounds good. That would make all of this far less complicated. This would make all of that far easier. And it would make it easier. And it does sound good. But if you start to think about it for too long, you're going to realize there's some flaws in this. There's some problems in this. Namely, that there are a lot of legitimately bad people in the world. There is a demand within us for justice. And if you have someone who takes something and then does not give justice where justice is due you are going to have a problem with that. Justice must be rendered. Do you understand that? If you've got got kids, they understand that. 
That's not fair. How come I got in trouble for this and they didn't get in trouble for this? How come this was the rule, but then you changed the rule for them? Are the rules different for them and, and, and for me? How does this work? If we all get in because God decides to turn a blind eye, then God may be gracious, but he would care nothing about his holiness or his name. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. There has to be moral accountability for his creation if holiness is a part of who God is. You feel this in your gut. Now, we can argue semantics all day long, but I know that you believe this to be true. We all have a yearning for justice. I don't think I have to convince you of this. Sin cries out for justice. So while just letting everyone in may solve some problems and may make all of this stuff far simpler to understand, it creates all kinds of others. Why? Because we all inherently know just letting everyone in would be, in fact, an unjust act by a just God. That's a problem. So let's just hold that right there and then we'll come back to that at the very end of this. So then the next question becomes, all right, if everybody can't just get in and God's going to, to somehow sort this out somehow, then, then, then the next question becomes, what are the conditions for entry? Who gets in and who doesn't? What do you have to do to get the wristband that says, I can go on this ride? What do you have to do? And at that point, whatever you say, Whatever answer you give to that, that becomes the standard and the necessary thing that you have to achieve. You must be this tall to ride. Whatever, whatever unit of measurement you want to put forward, that becomes the determining factor of who gets in. Jesus rejoices that the Father has simply revealed it to some and not to others. What, who, so who did he reveal it to? He revealed it to those that could see it. He revealed it to those that could see it. Who can see it? Those that aren't blind to it anymore. And I know that sounds like circular reasoning because it, it is, but this is how this works. This is my understanding of how predestination works. And this is just a small slice of Calvinism. Whenever somebody talks about Calvinism, if your definition of Calvinism is predestined or not predestined, man has free will, man doesn't have free will, that is a very small slice of this discussion that that goes way, way bigger. But this is my understanding of how predestination works. I I cannot see the the, the, the truth of who Jesus is nor how my name can be written in the book of life unless two things are true. One, I choose to see it, and two, God reveals it to me. Those two things must be true. That, God, that I choose to see it and that God reveals it to me. Now, who can see it? Only those who are like little children. Like infants. That's really what that word is getting at. It's not just talking about like, like you know, third graders. This is talking about the, the, the ultimate, like, dependent child here. Those who are like an infant and willing to see it. And this is what Jesus is celebrating. That the Father didn't put stipulations on it that said, you must be this 
fill in the blank to get into the kingdom. He didn't put the stipulations on there. There's no, you've got to be this tall to ride. You must be this blank to get in. I mean, what would it be? How would you fill in that blank? You should rejoice that that blank never gets filled in. What if God had said your ACT score was your determining factor on whether or not you get in? Some of you guys are like, hey, that's good. The rest of us are like, "Eh, it's not so good. Let's not talk about that. Maybe it's how many degrees you have. Maybe it's how hard you can throw a fastball. Maybe it's how good your marriage is. Maybe it's how many words per minute you can read. Maybe it's how many books you have read in your your lifetime. Maybe it's how much money you have made. Maybe it's how much football you've watched. Maybe it's how good you look. I don't know. This world will give you millions of things to fill that blank in with. Which one do you grab hold of and say, if I can have this thing, then then I'm good enough. If I can do this well enough, then I will be good enough. Anything, anything that gets put in that blank, you must be this blank to get in. Anything that gets filled into that blank, it will do you one. If God were to fill in that blank with anything, it will do one of two things. One, it will drive you to despair because you'll never get a 36 on the ACT or 35 or 34 or whatever the, the magic number is God decides needs to go in that blank. You'll never get that score. You'll never throw a fastball hard enough. You'll never read enough books. Your marriage won't be good enough. You'll never be pretty enough. And, and maybe you're thinking like, I would, the marriage would have worked, but the, it's the guy I married. That's the problem. I could have gotten in if it weren't for him, right? So what, whatever it is, whatever you fill in that blank with, you'll never have enough of it. And so it will drive you to complete despair because you can't get there. I would love to have been able to throw a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. That would have gotten me into the major leagues, right? But I threw like 87. I wasn't good enough. I couldn't throw it hard enough. So it's a good thing that God didn't say, if you're good enough to be a major league baseball player, you're good enough to get into my kingdom. Or whatever it was that you strove for. If he had said, you got to throw at 99 to get into the kingdom... I would be in despair. Or, if it doesn't drive you to despair, it will drive you to arrogance. Because you did make a 36 on the ACT. Because you did throw that ball hard enough. Because you did have a great marriage. Because you did read enough books. You did make enough money. You did get enough degrees. You did do whatever was required for you to achieve that thing. Aren't you something? Everyone should be as lucky to be what you are. God has just chosen you because you're good enough. Jesus rejoices and says, I am overjoyed that you, Father, didn't make any of those things a requirement. Instead, the only requirement is that you simply open your eyes and behold the majesty of God and your own helplessness. That's it. That is what is required. 
you see who Jesus is, how powerful he is, and how you aren't any of those things. Just like an infant realizes that he has no control, but that he desperately needs his mother if he's going to be nourished at all. This is what it means to see the kingdom, to see Jesus like a little child. Jesus says, thank you, Father, that there is nothing that, that, that can fill in that blank. Thank you that you never filled in that blank, Father, that I must have so-and-so to get into heaven. I must have blank to get into heaven. All you need is eyes to see and a Father to reveal it. And who does the Father reveal it to? Whoever can see it. Is that like, A little bit of a paradox. Does that blow your mind a little bit? Okay, then we're on the same page. This is what the Father has revealed. You say, well, are there those that want to see it, but they can't because the the Father hasn't revealed it to them? Because that would seem unfair. In fact, Jesus says there is. Look in verse 23. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that are... that." Sorry, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They want to see it, but they can't. And why can't they? Because God didn't reveal it and they didn't look. You say, well, it says that they they wanted to see. Yes, they wanted to see, but they didn't look. At least... They didn't look in the way that God has called us to. These men Jesus talks about, prophets and kings, they tried to find this path to heaven, this path to contentment. And they tried to do it through, through, through various different means. But not as a child. They sought it out as a king and a prophet. As in, in power and in education. They sought it out by looking for different things and looking for Jesus and all of these things. But they did not see him because that is not where he is found. He is found when you see him as a little child. Not as a king. Not as a prophet. Not as a scholar not as a baseball player or a, a great, even a great husband or a great wife or a great mom or a great dad. Those things are not what enable you to see. You'll never find Jesus that way if that's how you look for him. And some have said, I just want to like address this objection. Some have said that this idea leads to an anti-intellectualism in Christianity. One author famously called this the scandal of the evangelical mind. And by that, he means that there is no evangelical mind. He means that there is no, uh, that that we created a a Western culture of Christianity that does not value critical thinking uh, and reason. I'm not saying that is our goal. We value these things. These things have a prominent place for us in our conversations and here in our church. We want to be a church that thinks, that reasons, that that uses logic, that works through all of those things, that, that learns. But here's the thing. You cannot think your way into heaven. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot force your way into heaven. It is not a kingdom taken by force. Your name doesn't get written down in the book of life like that. You won't see Jesus if you're trying to argue your way into heaven. 
You won't see Jesus if you're trying to earn your way into heaven. You won't see Jesus if you're trying to force your way into heaven. Whatever it is, you keep filling in the blank. God doesn't reveal himself to people that keep trying to fill in the blank. He reveals himself to those that sit back and say, I got nothing. I got nothing. And he opens their eyes and they see that they have nothing and they see Jesus and they say, that guy has all that I need. And then the response is, God, why me? I didn't do anything to earn this. And God says, I know. That's why I've shown it to you. Because that's what's required of us. I'm going to show you this video now. It's like a five-minute video. This has been like going around on social media. So you may have seen this uh, over the course of the last month or so. Uh, I really hadn't planned to show this. But the more I got into this message, the more I was like, I've got to show this. This is too perfect for what I think is being encapsulated in these verses. So I'm actually going to sit down and we're going to watch this video. And I just want you to see how it encapsulates this whole idea. And then I'll come up and tie some things together. So go ahead. What's this thing you found? Gold. Gold and cash. Cartier watches. All kinds of stuff. Diamonds. Everything. There's nothing you can't find in New York City. So the way this industry works is people who have nothing go and they pick up the cans and bottles. Then we call a truck. So this truck goes and the driver gets one penny that he collects per bottle. Then the company that picks up the bottles from him gets eight and a half cents. How much do you make? Anywhere from four to $800 a week. You know, it sounds foolish, but what I do is I take the pot and pan on a Saturday and Sunday. I'll, go, I'll be in uh, Jackson Heights and I'll go sell it for five, seven dollars. So I make another thousand dollars every weekend from the stuff I find during the week. <laughs> I have to laugh because I've been doing it for so long. I've been living off of it. So in a week you have a couple grand maybe? 14, 15, 18, depends on the week. It depends on the weather. Because if I could be out in a summer day every day, I would sell all day every day. I'd make 3000 a week. Easy, easy. You grew up in New York? I grew up in New York, grew up in Queens. Met my wife down here, had three beautiful babies with her. Came up, involved in some not too good business. And I uh, got in trouble, got locked up, lost my wife and kids. So that's why I'm in this mess picking up It must up have cans. been very illegal. Was it like the FBI or something that got involved? The FBI got me. Uh, I was smuggling drugs, marijuana. Just marijuana? Just marijuana. And people. Oh, and people. Yeah. Okay. That's the real money. Millions and millions of dollars. We used to drive boats to the Bahamas, the Bimini, different islands, and bring them over to the United States. How'd you get caught? I got ratted on. Somebody told on me. So they got off of probation and I got 10 years. Do you regret anything? Oh, yeah. I regret everything. Lost my wife and kids. I didn't get to see any of the grandchildren be born. I missed a lot of stuff, man. You seem to be able to hold that pain together pretty well, though. You don't. What am I going to do? I got no more tears. I'm all cried out. Now all I do is I can only be joyful and laugh and have a good life because it's soon going to end. I'm 60. What were you like in the past? A little crazy, a little reckless. I used to have big muscles and great hair and girls thought I was cute. So I took advantage of all of that. And, and uh, it's not the right way to be. So now I'm a Christian. I do the right thing. I do my very best to walk properly, to love the others, you know? Milton, I didn't expect to see you here. Tell me about your relationship with God. Woo! So there's a great scripture in the Word of God from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. 
it says, for God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. What that means to me is before Genesis 1-1, he had already chosen those who he chose. I was called in June of 1993. I gave my life to the Lord. I was in jail. The three ladies came from the Bronx to preach. I just felt led in my spirit to say, okay, I, I, I think you're telling the truth. I agree. I'll accept. Since 1993, which is 30 years ago, I've screwed up a million times. I've been used of God a million times, but I've screwed up a million times. And I've come to the conclusion after 30 years that truly, truly God knew who I was and what I was going to do and what I was going to become. And He knew I would pick up cans one day before it ever happened. That scripture helps me to realize that when I fail, you know, don't please or do the things of God. He still loves me. He still cares for me because he chose me in Christ. He seated me at his right hand in heavenly places. I'm seated there right now, whether I deserve it or not. Is that hope you have for the future something you hold on to now? It's difficult, but... I've seen so many miracles and so many spiritual things that I firmly with all my heart believe that God is real. And therefore, I believe his promises in the word and I stand on them. I don't deserve it, but thank God for his grace, you know? Hola, Amanda. That's my friend Amanda. Eric, Hi. it didn't come out yet, love. Count your stuff. Milton's coming back in 15 minutes. John, here's a question for you. Talk to me. When you get to heaven, what are you going to ask God? I, why'd you choose me? <laughs> like, who am I? That you, cho <laughs> you chose me. <laughs> so I can walk on the streets made of gold. You got a house for me up there? Look at those streams and rivers and angels. Oh, it's good to go. I'd be so, I couldn't stop smiling down here. I'm going to stop smiling up there. <laughs> what do you think he would say of you? You could have did so much better. I had so much more for you. You big dummy. <laughs> what do you have to say to someone who's trying to believe in God but can't? Simplest answer ever. I heard it from a young boy. God, 15 seconds of your time. Bow down and say, Lord, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Speak to me. I could keep you here all day, Eric, with stories. My God has been great to me. And I appreciate you coming around to encourage me and invigorate me again about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> How are we doing, ladies? How's life? Great. I love that guy. I love that video. I, I think the joy that he shows encapsulates so much of what Jesus is rejoicing about here. I, I love so much of it. I think, I think this text is not about a theological doctrine that is abstract. It's a text about joy. That man has a joy that can't be taken, taken away. Why? Because he's got nothing to fill in that blank. He's got nothing. Whatever that blank is, it, it all got taken away from him. He's got nothing to fill in that blank, and he knows it. And there is a profound joy in that. There is a profound freedom in that. That his salvation was all God's doing. God sent his son. God opened his eyes. God showed him, stripped him of everything that he was trying to use to fill in that blank. And he's got nothing there. 
And there's such a joy that comes with that. And he says there at the end that if someone wanted to know God, what do you do? And he says, just ask God to reveal himself and he will speak. And the cool thing is that, that we know that he has already done that. He has already reliably spoken to us. We have God's word here. We have in, in, in the, the, the account, the gospels, the gospel writers give us a reliable testimony of who Jesus was and what he did and who God is because we can see him in the Son. We have in Luke's gospel, as he says at the very beginning, an orderly account written down that we might have certainty of who Jesus is. We have the power of the Spirit that can open our hearts and our eyes to the truth of what we read. But all of that is God's work. So our task is to study the Word, listen to the Spirit, to open our eyes, and then respond to that Word like a child full of dependence, not trying to fill in the blank, simply recognizing that the Father is at work and He's at work through the Spirit in the Son. If you will do that, if you will open your eyes and see who Jesus is, and then you will then respond in repentance and say, I got nothing here to fill in the blank. I trust you alone, Jesus. What we know, whatever you believe about predestination, wherever you fall on that spectrum, what we know is that if you will call out to him, he will answer. He will answer that prayer. We have that assurance in Scripture. We sing this song just a few minutes ago, the son of David. We start by saying, the blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. They're not strong enough to do that. What they need is Jesus to come and open their eyes. They're dependent upon the Father's will, the Spirit's movement, and the Son's work. And so it is for us. We are dependent upon the, the, the Father's will, the Spirit's movement, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When I said earlier that sin demands justice, we don't just get in by the, the Father saying, all right, you're good, you were humble enough, you get in. We get in because that, sacri- or that, that justice was satisfied by Jesus Christ on the cross. That sin was paid for. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we accept that sacrifice and we say, I'm not good enough to get into heaven. There's nothing I can fill in the blank with enough that will get me over that threshold. So I trust in that sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of my sins. And that is all. I need the blood of Jesus and I am fully dependent upon him or I am getting nowhere. That's the prayer. Son of David, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. I would reach out, I would I, I, I cry out, I, I would do all these things, but ultimately we are dependent upon the Son and upon the Father to show us the Son. That's what it means to be a Christian. And this is what this text teaches us, and it's a text of joy because it is all the Father's work. And that's what we celebrate here every Sunday. This is what we celebrate in our our front porch communities and our discipleship groups and all that we do. Because there's nothing else in the world that can compare or that is worthy of that celebration and that joy. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I pray for an infectious joy like this man that we have seen in the video. 
That when people meet us, they would know that we are a joyful people, not an argumentative people, not a a people that that are out to uh, belittle or bemoan or to destroy or to fight, but we are a people of joy. Because Jesus was full of joy. He was full of joy because he saw the way that you were working in this world. Father, I pray for eyes as little children, as infants, to see the glory of Jesus and how dependent we are upon him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.